Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to Oral Delights, show number 62. We have a double bill special. I hope everyone will stick around and enjoy the fun. Yes, double bill special. We have none other than our Larry Santuru dips in with a fine story and hot new sci-fi thriller writer Jeff Carlson comes back to the sofa. There we go. So, a fun-packed day for Starship Sofa's Oral Delights. I'll give you a little heads up what's coming in the show. A little slight change mix around because of this double bill special. There's an editorial by my good self, just a little kind of roundup on the Sofa Note Awards. We have no poetry. We have no flash fiction. We have, though, a fact article by Yeti Devere, part two of Blinded by the Light. This is where Yeti kind of tells you what's going on with his anthology. And in this little segment, Yeti gives out some great little pearls of wisdom if you ever want to try and get yourself or a short story of yours into a, like a proper full pain anthology. Do listen to that. Main fiction, or one of the main fictions, is by Jeff Carlson called Long Eyes. And Jeff's actually did a little intro as well, just to give you an update on what's happening with Jeff's life. And if things are going from strength to strength with Jeff, so look out for that. New titles. There is a little new title section, a few. And there's actually a science fiction one, again, has fell through my door. So look out for the new titles. And the other main fiction is Larry Santuru with a fantastic great title. It's nearly took up half my page or most of my page writing it out. Some stages along the way to our failure to reach the moon. And this is actually, Larry was moved to write something for the Space Shuttle Columbia's disaster, which was 2003, February the 1st. And... Actually, Larry's given us a story a while ago, and lucky enough, he reminded us, because it was meant to come out today, and I forgot all about it. So, Larry, thank you so much. And we'll have a little outro by Larry, just explaining things about that, you know, what happened with that story and everything like that. So, that's fascinating as well. So, I hope you will stick around, and, as I say, enjoy the show. So we'll kick off with straight into the editorial. And like I say, it's just a quick roundup of the Sofa Note Awards. And I'm very pleased. Yes, they were a total success. Blown, as usual, blown trumpets. But it was, it was really nice. Do you know what I mean? It was just like, it all came together and there was no hitches. There was nothing. It's because I actually took a back seat and I didn't run it. You know, that's why it worked. Just, it was perfect. Do you know what I mean? And, it was great because I got, I've had, actually, I forgot to even email Ted Chang about it and actually mention it. I was just, just 
done that the other night, but I emailed Spider Robinson, and uh, this is the email I got of Spider Robinson. Dear Tony, Bojomo, buy grabbed hammers, scared faces, no fooling, I won. Twice! Well, it could have happened to a nicer guy, but since it didn't, I suppose it's just as well it's me. They like me? They really, really like me? Seriously, I'm gassed, stoned, tickle-pinked, flipped, dipped, tripped out, grabbed, flattered, and dead chuffed by both these honours. You have a particular high-class audience of discerning and sophisticated ears. I'm happy to learn I meet up to their standards and yours. There you go. Fantastic. I love Spider, Spider Robinson. If you, if you email a guy, he emails straight away back. No messing, do you know what I mean? And he actually he works through the night, so he, basically he's on my timeline. And you get an email straight away, and he's a lovely guy with his emails. So it's tickled him as well. So there you go. We have done a little bit of a success there. Have I learned anything about doing the awards. Well, I think we probably missed our chance maybe to add two more, this is what I'm thinking, two more categories. And it's no good kind of, I guess, doing them now, sneaking them in there now. But I think we could have done Best Show, <laughs> which, when you think about it, was probably the main, main one we could have had the Best Show. 52 to choose from, do you know what I mean? But didn't think of that one. <laughs> that one flew straight past us. And probably, like... A person, I don't know what this title would actually come under, you know, a person who's most helped, achieved, or promoting science fiction, you know, something like that, in maybe oral delights, or maybe in, in a grander scale of science fiction. That could be a one as well, there's been mentions on the forums about those kind of issues. So we will learn from next time, and I'll just, you know, point at the mark, take notes, Mark. <laughs> so I think... That's it, yes. Thank you so much for everyone that's taken part, and I'm really pleased with them. We have the winners, and they were fantastic. Commiserations, yes, to all the losers, but it's it's not the winning. As my mum used to say, as I used to come in last at every bloody race I took part in. It's not the winning, Tony. It's the, it's the taking part. <laughs> so there you go. Thank you so much. <laughs> And we will now kick off with our fact article, which is Blinded by the Light. This is part two of Yetzir Devers' little in-depth look into getting an anthology shine off onto bookshelves. And in this one, it's fascinating because Yetzir actually gives, like I said in the introduction, some real pearls of wisdom of how to get your story on his desk and make him accept it. So I'll just hand you straight over to... Blinded by the Light, Episode 2 In my ongoing quest to get a major anthology edited, published and promoted, I will talk about writing and selecting stories. Coincidentally, this week was a week of whiskey tasting. On Sunday, January the 25th, there was the, now semi-legendary, first online whiskey tasting on Twitter, hosted by Messieurs Dabber and Clutch of Twisky. This involved people worldwide getting three types of single malt whisky and then tasting them, led on by the Twisky team and tweeting their impression. About 600 people attended, so it was quite a success. Then the next day, Monday January 26th, I had a non-virtual whisky tasting myself in a liquor store close by. It was well organized, even if maybe a bit overdone. Originally we were going to taste seven whiskies, 
those were from one big wholesaler who sponsored the event. But the organizing guy was very enthusiastic, so he added two more whiskies, and there were nine whiskies waiting for me and everybody else when I arrived, and in the end he even decided to add another one. So all in all, we tasted ten whiskies. Ten! I had planned to record this episode after that tasting, but decided it might be better to delay it one day, as I was a bit too well lubricated. However, it did bring inspiration. I will expand on the similarities between whiskey and, and science fiction, both in the production stage, whiskey, uh, writing science fiction compared to making whiskey, and in the consumption stage, tasting whiskey compared to reading stories, especially reading submissions. To start, a few broad analogies. First, I would equate single malt whiskey with SF. Both are relatively young and have matured relatively quickly and have acquired both a great range and complexity that are not immediately apparent, but need a certain accommodation, an amount of getting used to, before they can be really appreciated. Mystery, I would equate to bourbon and blended whiskey. I think that goes without saying. Fantasy, uh, to me, is more like cognac. Also relatively young, and also achieved a high degree of diversity and maturity reasonably fast, and needs quite a bit of acclimatization as well. Horror is a bit more like gin, vodka or tequila. All are most potent when used straight up, and can have surprising depths and complexity in the more advanced forms. Literature seems more like wine to me, It's been around much longer and can be incredibly refined. And storytelling in general, well, it's a bit like beer. Both have been along since time immemorial. Beer was already made by the old Egyptians and Mesopotamians, and probably before that. And both are nourishing, great and addictive. Secondly, before one can start making whiskey, or beer, or wine or cognac, one needs to have been drinking it a lot, in order to really know it. Same with writing. Before you can write the real good science fiction, or fantasy, or horror, or mystery, or literature story, you need to have read a lot of stories in this genre to have a good knowledge of it. However, as Matt Coward pointed out in his cult classic Success and How to Avoid It, anyone who can write a shopping list thinks they can write, and anybody who thinks they can write thinks they should write. This is similar to saying like, I can drink water, I can put a glass of water, so I can make whiskey. Such a person would be considered crazy, while similarly, inadequate writers are considered normal, and are even encouraged. To the heart of the matter, part 1. The commonalities between producing single malt whisky and producing NSF story. Both need raw materials. With whisky, especially single malt whisky, these are malted barley and smoked to dry the germinated malt. Sometimes peat is used as fuel, water and yeast. With writing SF, these are, subsequently, research, and ideas, sometimes high-octane ones, experience and inspiration. Let's go through this step by step. Malting. Malt whisky production begins when the barley is malted, by steeping the barley in water and then allowing it to get to the point of germination. Malting releases enzymes that break down starches in the grain and help convert them into sugars. When the desired state of germination is reached, the malted barley is dried using smoke. Many, but not all, distillers add peat to the fire to give an earthy, peaty flavor to the spirit. Well, SF story production begins when research, 
on the future development, be it scientific, technological, sociological or a combination thereof, is pre-outlined by steeping the research with experience so that new ideas can begin to germinate. Pre-outlining releases insights that break down strands in the research and helps convert them into concepts. When the desired state of germination is reached, the conceptual research is thickened using ideas. Many, but not all, writers add humor to the ideas to give an earthy, witty flavor to the primordial story. Meshing and fermentation. The dried malt is ground into a coarse flour called grist. This is mixed with hot water in a large vessel called a mesh tun. The grist is allowed to steep. This process is referred to as meshing, and the mixture as mesh. In meshing, enzymes that were developed during the malting process are allowed to convert the barley starch into sugar, producing a sugary liquid known as wort. The wort is then transferred to another large vessel called a washback, where it is cooled. The yeast is added, and the wort is allowed to ferment. The resulting liquid now about 5-7% alcohol by volume, is called wash, and is very similar to a rudimentary beer. Thus, with science fiction stories, the pre-outline is ground into a coarse story grist called pulp. This is mixed with hot air in a large vessel called the writer's ego. The pulp is allowed to permeate the writer's ego steeply. This process is referred to as smashing and the mixture as story mesh. In smashing, the idea germs that were developed during the pre-outline process are allowed to convert the pulp into a hot, throtting, sweet leather liquid called words. The overheated words are then transferred into another large vessel, called the writer's despair, or smashback, where they are cooled. The inspiration is added, and the words are allowed to, fer- to ferment. The resulting narrative now about 92-95% Sturgeon's Law by volume, is called hogwash, and is very similar to a rudimentary speculative narrative. Distillation. The next step is to use a still to distill the wash. Distillation is used to increase the alcohol content and to remove undesired impurities, such as methanol. Thus, the next step in science fiction is to use Kill the kill your darlings still, to kill the hogwash. Killing your darlings is used to decrease the Sturgeon's law by volume and to remove undesired impossibilities such as Falk's masterclass. For malt whisky, the wash is transferred into a wash still. The liquid is heated to the boiling point of alcohol, which is lower than the boiling point of water. The alcohol evaporates and travels to the top of the still through the line arm and into a condenser where it is cooled and reverts to liquid. This liquid has an alcohol content of about 20% and is called low wine. For SF, the hogwash is transferred into the hogwash curl. The words are heated to the boiling point of fine prose, which is lower than the boiling point of crap. The fine prose evaporates and travels to the top of the skull through the lying arm and into a condescender, such as a pen or a word processor, where the words are made through flesh and referred to actual text. This text has a Sturgeon's law by volume of about 80% and is called low writing. The low wine is distilled a second time in a spirit still 
and the distillation is divided into three cuts. The first liquid or cut of the distillation is called four shots and is generally quite toxic due to the presence of the low boiling point alcohol methanol. These are generally saved for further distillation. It is the middle cut that the stillman is looking for, which will be placed in casks for maturation. At this stage it is called new make. Its alcohol content can be anywhere from 60 to 75%. The third cut is called the feints and is generally quite weak. These are also saved for further distillation. For SF, the low writing has its darlings killed a second time in the spiritual skull. And this refinement is divided into three cuts. The first cut of the refining process is called preliminary shit and is generally quite toxic due to the presence of high boiling point Fox upper class. This is generally safe for further refinement. It is the middle cut that the writer is looking for, which will be placed in bottom drawers for maturation. At this stage it is called newly made up. Its sturgeon's law by volume content can be anywhere from 25 to 40%. The third cut is called feigning it and is generally quite weak. That is also saved for further refinement. Maturation. Once distilled, the new make spirit is placed into oak casks for the maturation process. Historically, casks previously used for sherry were used, as barrels are expensive and there was already market for used sherry buds. Nowadays, the casks used are typically sherry or bourbon casks, sometimes other varieties such as port, cognac, Madeira, Calvados, beer and Bordeaux wine are used. For SF, once refined, the newly made up is placed into oak bottom drawers for the maturation process. Historically, drawers previously used for newspapers were used, but nowadays any bottom drawer with a decent lock will do, as it's not the newly made up story that needs to mature, but the writer's appreciation of it. For whisky, the aging process results in evaporation. So each year in the cask causes a loss of volume as well as a reduction in alcohol. The 0.5 to 2% lost each year is known as the angel share. Many whiskies along the west coast are stored in open storehouses on the coast, allowing the salty sea air to pass it on its flavor to the spirit. With SF, the aging process results from distraction, so that the writer gradually forgets about the newly made up, resulting in loss of voluminosity as well as a reduction in sturgeon's law by volume. The 0.5 to 2% lost each year is known as the Angel's Revenge. Many writers on the West Coast and Berkeley especially allow the local pot smoke to pass on its flavor into the spirit of the narrative. Bottling. With single malts, the now properly aged spirit may be vetted or married. With other single malts, sometimes of different ages, from the same distillery. The whisky is generally diluted to a bottling strength of between 40 and 46%. Occasionally, distillers will release a cask strength edition, which is not diluted and will usually have an alcohol content of 50 to 60%. With a ZEF, the now properly aged narrative may be rewritten or mixed with other newly made ups, sometimes of different time periods, from the same writer. The narrative is generally diluted to a mass market appeal 
of between 54 to 60% sturdy and slow by volume before it is sent out to market. Occasionally, writers will send out a full strength edition, which is not diluted and will occasionally have a sturdy and slow by volume content of 40 to 50%. Any less sturdy and slow in the final narrative may cause heads to explode, though. Chill filtration. Many whiskies are bottled after being chill filtered. This is a process in which the whisky is chilled to near 0 degrees centigrade, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, and passed through a fine filter. This removes some of the compounds produced during distillation or extracted from the wood of the cask, and prevents the whisky from becoming hazy when chilled, or when water or ice is added. Chill filtration also removes some of the flavor and the body of the whisky, which is why some consider chill filtered whiskies to be inferior. With SF, many narratives are sent out to market after being workshopped. This is a process in which the warm narrative is chilled by cool observation by third parties and passed through a fine critique filter. This removes some of the original composition produced during the refining process or extracted during maturation and prevents the narrative from becoming ambiguous when read or when interpretation or misreading are added. Workshopping also removes some of the flavor and unique voice from the narrative, which is why some consider workshop stories to be inferior. This, I hope, demonstrates the the great commonalities between producing good whiskey and writing good SF. The problem is, though, that huge amounts of both whiskey and SF are produced. Whiskey Magazine says they give information and tasting notes of over 1000 different whiskies from around the world, and I've read somewhere that it was estimated that some 17,000 different novels were written every year in the UK alone. For ease of argument, I'll estimate the number of short stories in the same order of magnitude. So how does a poor, or rich for that matter, whisky aficionado find the best whisky? One possibility to taste each and every one personally. With whisky this is, given enough time, money and incentive, still somewhat doable. However, with SF-stories, the amount of slush is overwhelming for even the most hardened soul. So you need a gatekeeper. Uh, So you need a gatekeeper. A renowned whisky taster, like Michael Jackson, may he rest in peace, or, for fiction, an editor. Hence, we come to the similarities between whisky tasting and selecting stories from a slush pile. With whisky, one starts with a presentation. The impression of the bottle, the overall packaging... The way the whisky looks in the tasting glass. With science fiction slash is the cover email or letter that may already tell about the product being sold. A poorly presented product will already turn off the discerning whisky taster. A label not correctly in place, a screw cap instead of a cork, an odd looking bottle. The well-worn short story editor will sigh inwardly at a cover letter with a near endless list of mostly unimportant credits. A synopsis, this is novel for novels, but not for short stories, or even worse, an explanation of the attached story, or no discernible contact information, all signs of a lacking professionalism. Still, both the hardened whisky taster and SF editor will overcome their initial misgivings and taste the actual product. And this is where the case comes to the crunch. 1. The whisky is poured in the tasting glass. Does it look amber, golden, golden yellow? Is it clear, somewhat clouded, or totally murky? Or, one, with whisky. 
with science fiction, the MS file, the manuscript file, is opened for a first look-see. Is it written in a clear, legible font, or in extreme, gothic freestyle? Does it have contact info, or at least a contact email, in the top left corner? Does it have a title and an author name? Yes, dear listener, you would be surprised at how many electronic manuscripts don't include even those. Again, the experienced whiskey and or SF gatekeeper will not reject anything outright at this point, but if a candidate already has messed up some essential at this point, there is an unfortunate suspicion about the quality of the actual product that, in a majority of cases, is proved correct. The whisky is smelt. What does the nose give? Apart from the necessary alcohol, which should not be too overwhelming, as with cask strength, in which case we need to add water, what do we discern? Smoke. If you don't like whiskies heavy on the peat, and yes, whisky is mostly a matter of taste, although one can develop and refine the taste, then you already know that this one is not for you. Heavy odine and a chemical overtone, if you don't like whiskies that taste like they come from a pharmaceutical production line, then you know it's not for you either. Toffee, butterscotch, okay. Vanilla, chocolate, good. Flowery, herby, nice. Fruity, somewhat sweet, fine. Spicy, complexity, great. Two, it's science fiction, the first three paragraphs are read. Sometimes only the first. How do the sentences flow? How are the words chosen? How does the story begin? Apart from the necessary SF elements, which should not be overdone, lest they become clichés, what do we see? Sometimes, a certain clunkiness in the writing can turn an editor off. Not necessarily unintended misspellings, but more a use of words that show that the writer does not really have a way with words. Sometimes the beginning is too forced, the writer is trying too hard. Writing is hard, but it shouldn't show. It should seem effortless, even if, especially if, it isn't. Also, the first paragraph shows its fantasy, horror, or that the story has no genre elements at all. That's an immediate reason for rejection, not what the editor is specifically looking for. And the first shifting takes place. Experienced whiskey aficionados and SF editors can already tell that this is not for them, either because it doesn't suit their tastes, or because it is not at the required level. Friendly yet firm rejection ensues. Those that passed go through to the second shifting. 3. The whisky is tasted. Not immediately swallowed whole, but rolled over the tongue several times in order to get, give the taste bust. <coughs> the whisky is tasted. Not immediately swallowed whole, but rolled over the tongue several times in order to give the taste buds the chance to discern the flavors in the mix. And it's not just the ingredients themselves, but also if they are used in the right combination and with the right balance. Unique character comes into play. Does this work as a more straightforward whisky or as a complex mix? Apart from personal taste, this is where craftsmanship, sensitivity and an elusive X-factor come into play. For fiction, for science fiction, the story is read. Sometimes to the end, sometimes not. It's rolled through the mind several times in order to give the analytic reader the chance to discern the components in the mix. Are the characters believable? Is the world building good? Does the writing thrill? Is the concept brought forward with verve? Is there a sense of humor, wonder or awe? 
Unique Voice enters the equation. Does this work better as a thrilling adventure or as an intricate denouement? Apart from the personal preferences, this is where writing chops, sensibility and an undefinable quality enter the equation. The second shifting takes place. Now candidates that have some promise must be discarded because they, while interesting, just didn't work at some level. Some promising candidates may be set aside for a second reading or more tasting. If that brings up some hidden depths, then it might make the cut after all. But before an eventual second try, there is another consideration. 4. The aftertaste. Is it smooth or sharp, or a mix of both? Is it long or short? Dry or not? Does it make me ache for more? Or the reverse? 4. For SF. It's what I call the resonance of a story. Does it linger? Do I want to consider the implications? Or are all loose ends neatly tied up? Do I wish to stay in that world? I want to return to it. Or not? Do I still remember it after an hour? A day? A week? A month? A year? Eventually, after this careful selection procedure, a number of candidates that one wishes to purchase are left. With whiskey, the amount of bottles you buy will then mostly depend on your financial situation. With short fiction, it mostly depends on the amount of space you have available. In both cases, the best result is if there are more suitable candidates available than there is space for to purchase. So then, one can select the top candidates, which can sometimes be very difficult, and turn down the last ones, often with pain in your heart. But there can always be a new tasting, or a new anthology. Rarely, very rarely, actually all too rarely, unfortunately, there is this whiskey, or this story, where everything just clicks from the get-go. A superb whiskey, the way it rolls through the glass with a syrupy confidence, gives off a bouquet, both brittle and brilliant, a tongue full of complexity that is always just one step ahead of you, and leaves you totally immersed. A superb story, the way it goes off with an assured voice, draws you in with a certain flair, has you second-guessing every step of the whale, while bathing you in gorgeous prose and awesome concepts and keeps you completely absorbed. Then you know you have found your match. And here, finally, is a quintessential difference between whiskey tasting and SF slushing. An editor can ask an author for a rewrite, in the hope that a refurbished story will meet the editor's needs and expectations. It's impossible to send the whiskey back to the distiller though and tell him to refine or rework. The only recourse is to try a whiskey of the same brand, but a different vintage, older, newer, single malt or blended, cask strength or limited edition. Good night. The man's obsessed with whiskey. <laughs> Yeti, thank you so much. Looking forward to the next one. This is just getting better and better. That was some great advice. If only, if only I'd had that 10 years ago. So we're going to jump straight into our main fiction. And I'm actually not going to introduce Jeff. I'm going to let Jeff do it himself. It would, it would deflate his balloon. It is narrated by our good friend, Amy H. Sturgis, who does a cracking narration here. Amy, thank you so much. Hey, it's Jeff Carlson again today on Starship Sofa. I'm here to do an introduction for my short story, Long Eyes, which appeared in the Fast Forward 2 anthology from Pyre Books. 
uh, which is pretty exciting stuff for me. If you look at this book, if you go out to the store right now and buy 17 copies for everybody that you know, you will see that this is a great-looking anthology with a, a bunch of big-name folks. Just looking right here at the cover, we got Ben Rosenbaum and Corey Doctorow with a sweet collaboration. you got Kay Kenyon. Little folks like Jeff Carlson are in there, too. It was just awesome to be in a book like this. Um, Fast Forward 2 is currently shortlisted for the Philip K. Dick Award, which is presented annually for the Best Science Fiction Paperback Original. Uh, my my sly little segue is that Plague War by Jeff Carlson, my second novel, is also shortlisted for the Philip K. Dick Award right now, which will be presented at NorwestCon in April. Uh, so I'm actually on the shortlist 1.14 times because there's 14 stories in Fast Forward 2, and I'm one of them. And also my second novel, Plague War, is on there. There's a shortlist with six books, and I'm on the shortlist 1.14 times. Very excited about that. Um, Long Eyes is quickly becoming one of my more successful pieces of short fiction. It's already been translated into Hebrew, Portuguese, and Romanian. And it's just cool here. I'll be looking forward to listening to the narration because the folks at Starship Sofa do a good job. They absolutely nailed my novelette, The Frozen Sky, which they did last year. Uh, just looking forward to the story. I'm excited about the story. Get that story going. Um, the original inspiration for the story, I'm going to just digress briefly here. The original inspiration for this story was a golden age, one of those classic golden age sci-fi stories written by James Blish. I believe it was a grandmaster. Somebody get on Google real fast. James Blish, grandmaster, check. Uh, he wrote a story called Surface Tension, which has been widely reprinted and anthologized. I suggest going out and getting a copy if you haven't already read it. Now, this was the kind of sci-fi written back in the day, you know, when the heroes were all steely-jawed heroes with large pectoral muscles, and the women were all wasp-waisted, wasp-wasp-waisted. They were all, they had thin waists, and they were all bimbos. They're like, oh, help me, Flash, save me, save me from the danger. Um, my story, I like to think, isn't cornball like that. Uh, but the Blish story, some of the major themes in the story, uh, it's about a, a spaceship that crashes on an alien planet and they don't have many resources and they're all going to die. And my story isn't like that, except for these themes, the themes of loneliness and despair and adaptability and determination and the ability of human beings to overcome nearly any obstacle using their intelligence and their grit. If you've read my plague novels, Plague Year, Plague War, and the third book in the trilogy will be out in December. Um, you know, these are things that, that are kind of near and dear to me. They're a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun to be backed into the corner and have to, you know, work your way out through all these obstacles. And that was some of my inspiration, as was I've always been a big fan of the big, sprawling sci-fi ideas with, you know, the intergalactic struggles and the interstellar depths and the astrophysics and all this kind of stuff. Most of what I write is present day tech thriller, you know, Michael Crichton kind of this could really happen tomorrow. And I confess that those are my favorites because it's spookier if it could really happen. If it could really happen tomorrow, that's cool. But all this far out stuff with the death rays and the aliens and the warp drives, that's all cool. But I wanted to write a story. You know, what if there wasn't a faster than light drive? What if we didn't have the warp drive? What if you couldn't just throw on the hyperdrive, Chewbacca, and you had to go 600 light years somehow and survive just, you know, as a normal person? How would you do that? Um, and so without giving any more of the story away, 
that was kind of the inspiration. Uh, I hope you guys enjoyed the story. This was a lot of fun to write. Like I said, it's fun to see it, you know, appearing in different languages around the world. Um, I encourage everyone to come by my website at jverse.com. That's J as in Jeff, verse as in universe, jverse.com. I've got videos, contests, trying to maintain a blog. There's free fiction. There's free excerpts of the novels, free short stories, you name it. Um, have a good time and thank you again. I'll talk to you guys later. Long Eyes by Jeff Carlson The ship turned to investigate, and Clara tried to override, not because she wasn't curious, but because she was still homo sapiens in every way that mattered. It frightened her to lose control. But the men and women who'd agreed to invest in her had also invested in the top intelligence designers, and the central computer would not relinquish its orders. Clara was bound deeply to the ship, so deeply that in one sense she was only another part of it, a human-shaped component in a cradle of gel and splice wire. The complex nerves of her forearms and vertebrae were joined to plastic, metal, and glassware. She felt and influenced all systems directly, all except this one separate mind. Their battle was quiet and careful, until Clara determined that the central computer was most vulnerable during the corrective burns. The NAV program was a doorway between them, and she tried to shut it down. She tried to make it run long. No luck. The cool orange K-star was just too close for the ship to ignore, and even Clara stared in enchantment as they approached the shadows of the system's comet cloud. Maybe too soon, she stopped fighting and joined her skills with the ship. Dodging their way in through the outer system would be weeks of rapid math. It became a new contest, and the adrenaline was good, but Clara still added a dirty word to the ship's reports when it cast a tight beam back toward home. The dark and the cold were her friends. More than anything, Clara liked to be able to see. So light and atmosphere were only complications. Light because it blinded her telescopes, air because it distorted. Before her third name day, she'd also realized that living in one place had limits. She preferred to drift. She was good at it. She was rich for it. She was a failed experiment, a parentless child of the state, grown ex-utero, originally gene-crafted to be an asteroid mining dock controller, stacking ore and fuel pods in complex micro-orbits, guiding slowboats in and out of the cluster. At first, that had been a challenge, then only repetitive. She'd left home 600 years ago, 600 years by herself, jetting away from known space, peering ahead and to all sides with fantastic eyes. The administration had been generous. They regretted what they'd made of her. They gave her the ram ship she wanted. Of course, the vast reach of macroscopes made any explorer almost irrelevant, except that in time she would gain new angles and the chance, here and there, for closer analysis. Her freedom came with a price. They'd programmed the central computer to report on a set list of potentially habitable systems first, all very similar G- and K-class stars. Clara didn't mind. She was doing exactly what she wanted, 
feeding imagery to her weird brain as big as everything within range of her long eyes. She was never lonely. If she needed noise, if she wanted other thoughts, there was always a signal to tap, almost always. And in those rare zones where communications were sunk or blocked, bent by a sun or degraded by dust, the computer had millions of hours of radio traffic on record. At a fraction of light speed, Clara wouldn't truly be outside the sphere of human activity for centuries to come. So she slept. She slept a lot. The ship went through its self-repairs, and it did its work on her as well. And each time she woke, she was met by a new feast of colors and living shapes, the clockwork of stars all pulling on each other, halos of rock and ice. She wanted to go on forever. But she had also come to realize, too late, that she shouldn't have been so trusting They were 17.7 light years beyond the nearest recorded colony. Clara could not sell information for food or hardware or sex. She could get software patches, however, which could be the keys to reprogram the computer core. Keys to freedom. She had one more chance to fight as the ship moved inward past a gas supergiant, readjusting its course again. But Clara didn't struggle. She put her energy into maps and sims instead. Unfortunately, the remainder of the system was just two inner planets and some groupings of comets falling through and back. There was nothing valuable except the second planet, a brown and black rock with a crude atmosphere. Recalibrating her eyes for close-in analysis was both painful and a delight. Physically painful. Extreme adjustments took sweat and discomfort. But her reward was that she became this world's demigod, aware of every dust moat, able to gauge the poetry of its winds and its lopsided mantle and the hot, echoing pockets within its surface. The oxygen content the ship had locked onto was barely a wisp. Clara didn't wonder that it had been detected at all. Her eyes were that powerful. But was it exploitable? Could human beings ever walk on this planet? If she drew down 10,000 comet impacts before she left, slamming more water into the environment, could she kickstart a terraforming effort that might almost become livable before anyone else arrived? There was a lot of money and clout to be had just in the possibility, and something else she hadn't thought she wanted. Redemption. Clara was happy with the choices she had made, but she was still a woman who'd turned her back on everyone she knew. This would be a way to reconnect. In a sense, it was almost a way to bring them with her. She hadn't thought that idea would feel so good, and she wasn't sure she liked it. She added a whole string of curse words to the ship's next tight beam, but she was laughing, too. First of all, she said, you can name it after me. Clara ran a hundred orbits and mostly learned only new questions. The planet's surface was barren. Mold, lichen, and weeds grew here and there, but not enough to explain the fragile, swirling atmosphere or the animal methane. There was life, but where? Clara sounded the pockets in the mantle, but was frustrated by their number. Even the obvious air leaks, the warm storms and bleeds from underground, were little help. All of these were volcanic gases. 
Twice she isolated vents that also held traces of biological material, but both paths back inward were an impossible maze of fractures and cave-ins. Everywhere the mantle was breaking. This planet had a weak core and only three quarters Earth gravity. It had bubbled. Along the equator, in fact, one clump of hollows ran six hundred kilometers wide. Some of these pockets were self-contained, forever dark and still. Some held or shared small oceans, or had at one time. They seemed promising, but the sulfur content in many was stifling and lethal. Most were empty. Clara's imaging was a busy song of pinpoints and caverns. Each resonated in its own way, holding anything from a few millibars of air to gluey salt sludge. A huge crater gaped near one edge of the equatorial maze, a fourteen-kilometer bubble that had collapsed eons ago. Clara dubbed it the kitchen sink. It had everything thrown in except what she really wanted—positive proof. Dark weeds covered its ragged floor, thriving on outgassing and water vapor. The walls of the pit both protected it from the wind and held the heat of the sun. So she watched. She waited. There were also bugs in the sink, hard-shell creatures no bigger than her fingernail. Some ate leaves. Some ate the others. The ship wanted to go down. No, Clara said, speaking aloud what she only needed to signal. The muscles in her back rippled as if to turn and run. Would she win a battle for control? The ship's designers had clearly given it more autonomy than they told her. It cited reasons for landing, good reasons. They needed samples. They could never know, only by scanning, if the chemical makeup of this ecology held threats too vicious to overcome. For example, there was a viral assembly on SETI four that hadn't touched the first colonists, but destroyed the second generation. Leaving them with eight hundred blind, idiot children. For all its stubbornness, even the central computer knew there was no point wasting more time here if this planet held something just as deadly. Clara compromised, hoping to placate the machine. She brought them into synchronous orbit above the sink and began to build a small probe in her nanoforge, using up precious steel and rubber. In the meantime, she turned all eyes on the bugs. She ran simulations based on observable metabolic activity. She wargamed human DNA against incomplete models. She found another ship. It was hardly even wreckage. It had been stripped down to the hull, and much of that was missing too. What remained was half buried, separated in a landslide. Clara only spotted it because she was running such tight grids. The broken framework was old. Older than her, alien. The bounty on a find like that would be incredible. Humankind had yet to meet another thinking species. Even bacteria and bugs were rare. More likely, it was one of the turn of the millennia seed ships that had gone missing, or a religious group, or privateers, or just about anybody. There was heat warp debris abandoned in the strata around the tail. Had there been an internal explosion, perhaps they'd impacted with some bit of cosmic junk, but it looked like they'd managed a controlled landing. All dead now, they hadn't even made much of a go of it, or Clara would have seen the evidence weeks before. 
Even just a few stragglers lost in the caves would have lit up on X-ray or deep red by now, much less a real, thriving outpost. Clara was mad at herself for feeling relieved. What if she needed rescuing someday? Would she deserve it? She stalled the ship with busy work for nineteen days before it got weird. The computer began triple confirming even routines like meals and exercise, and finally Clara gave up, sleepless and uneasy, caught in a rut of doubt. It was awful to distrust her home. They touched down on the largest slab of rock that she could find, even though it was two kilometers from the wreckage and wet with puddling and ice. They massed only four tons, but Clara was leery of the jags and cracking across the crater floor. She preferred to deal with the slick rime of mud. Even on this plug of granite, they might trigger a quake. And Clara wasted more than a minute of fuel letting her jets run, ready to fly again in an instant. At the same time, there was a frenzy among the bugs—a sudden, spiraling frenzy. She'd vaporized most of the pond, and a thick fog swept away from the ship, lifting on the heat of the jets, falling in the cold. And within the fog, the bugs mated and fed. Weeds exploded with spores or slumped apart, revealing strong blossoms like tongues. She should have expected it. Almost any disturbance here was a wealth of energy, and the ecosystem was ravenous. Good, Clara had no intention of venturing outside, and this should convince the ship that she'd already risked enough. She tried to imagine one footstep out there, motion, noise, the faintest heat of friction. The bugs would swarm. Even the plants might attack with nettles or oils. She couldn't be sure what might damage a pressure suit. The ship was unrelenting in its priorities, but it needed her. It deferred to her so long as she kept after its goals. They lobbed their first probe at the wreckage and found nothing conclusive. Meanwhile, they shot a dozen self-contained labs into the mud and through the air, busy little boxes full of chem tests. Clara enjoyed the work. Everything here was new and fascinating, and still at a safe distance. Only radio messages came back inside. The gremlins appeared on the second night, a running, shifting mass of small bodies, mammals. In infrared, they burned hot on her screens, and Clara smiled and flexed. Her hand was exactly the same size as one of the creatures, and she waggled her fingers, mimicking their wire-limbed scramble across the rocky crater. There you are, she said. How deep must they live inside the cave systems to have escaped her previous scans? And how many more of them could there be? They were scavengers, tough and nasty, with a constant jerk of claws to mouth. They uprooted weeds and hives in a furious, haphazard path that had its own sense. With every sunset, there was a severe drop in temperature. The plants reacted first. Some curled shut. Some exuded pigment as an insulator. The bugs fled into their burrows, and then the air began to stir. Clara found it beautiful, but of course she was immune inside her ship. A dance of cold swept the crater. On the surface above, the freeze was much worse. Ripping winds and knives of dust, cyclones reached down into the sink, but were countered by thermals and radiant heat—a dynamic in six directions. 
The air was not breathable, not outside the mist that formed as the atmosphere separated into layers and tendrils. The fog she'd broiled from the pond had been warm and white. These channels of air were nearly invisible, chill against the ground, and she assumed the gremlins could see in infrared or were at least highly cold-sensitive. Occasionally they edged in and out of the globs of breathable air, but in places they had to leave these safe zones. In many places there were gaps. The gremlins were bipeds, thick in the back and belly, big lungs, big stomachs. They either gorged or starved. They were stalking her. The realization went through Clara like a seizure. They're working their way to this ship. They've been doing it from the start. Edging back and forth through the swirls and dead ends of the storm, the pack had already closed within 200 meters. A short dash. Even if the pocket they were following continued to sweep away from her, as it was doing, they could survive that distance. She had seen them go farther. But then what? Surely they wouldn't risk it unless there was breathable air around her. And even then, what could they do? Claws on steel. There were eighteen of them. They scrabbled too fast for Clara's eyes, but her systems had already detailed and profiled each one. They were smart little hairballs, organized. Their leader kept scouts to four sides of the group, and these guards constantly ranged out and back again as the pack surged and split apart and reformed, flowing with and between the available air. Clara readied a batch of nanotags, but didn't fire. Her tracer recorders would only sting, bonding with skin and muscle. But she'd wait until the gremlins had gone most of the way back to their holes. Otherwise, they might see the flash of her micro cannons, and she didn't want to provoke them. Didn't want them to associate the darts with her. How smart were they really? Her mics and subsystems said they did not have language, only the most basic grunts. Although their gestures approached a speech equivalent. That made sense. They lived in a world where there wasn't always air to breathe, and maybe there were predators in the dark of the caves, listening, always listening. Clara stared at a freeze frame of the leader's face. For an instant, her mind felt as still as the calm around the ship. Then all of the ideas lurking around her crashed together, and she initiated her fusion engines. Get out of here! She thought. The gremlins' hair distorted, but did not exaggerate the size of their brain cases. And radar confirmed that their body fur had been trimmed in distinct ways, apparently stylized as well as grown out for warmth and protection. Their eyes were evolved for daylight. They had opposable thumbs, and carried flecks of granite in hand. They were on the verge of civilization, and Clara understood. That this is what scared her most. Get out! But the ship countermanded her startup. No less than four safety features blocking her intent. Clara flinched and went to emergency override. Blocked again. A new current of air swept across her position, and the gremlins jumped into it, rushing the ship. Clara fired her nanotags in a single burst, wanting only to scare them. More than thirty percent missed or reported suboptimal placement. The rest squawked with data, but barely slowed the pack. Then, they were on her. Clara screamed, "Ah!" 
Her voice was such a lonely thing. Somehow that caught and centered her. She had no one else to rely on. She twitched within her box of gel and wire, lighting up all systems. There were no anti-personnel defenses, but if she could outfox the ship, she could lift off, and that would kill the little monsters, suffocate or bake or pop them. And she had the nanoforge. She could build a cat's claw if she just had the time. But the gremlins found a seam where her cannons had opened, and then another on her belly. They abandoned the first and threw themselves against the new crack in a kicking, hanging mass. They bent back the low-weight alumalloy. Too late, the ship realized the danger. Too late, it dumped its protocols and gave her control. The gremlins were already inside, squeezing and twisting through any available space: repair panels, ductwork, delivery shunts. They ruptured the ship's innards like a climbing, shouting cancer. They were human. Can you understand me? Clara put her words through the ship with docking radios and sonar. Hysterical now, she needed to convey her fear, if nothing else. They were human. The data was clear. Clara didn't want to believe it, but the burst from the nanotags was unmistakable. Despite every adaptation, these monsters were human beings, and that would make it easier to hunt them. She tried again. Stop! Stop! We can talk. But at the same time, she was designing a nerve gas in her forge. They tore through the ship without purpose, bypassing the diagnostic web that let her track them, ripping into the circuitry of a macroscope instead. It was pointless. It was no. Their goal here was the same as it had been out among the weeds. They were not attacking an enemy. They were plundering an unexpected resource. Stop! Clara yelled. They were savages. Even if they escaped with as much gear as they could carry, even if they ruined the ship and then slowly pulled its guts out piece by piece, the metals and wiring and everything else would only be sharper knives, better ropes, whatever stupid things they could fashion. This is your last chance," she said. "Please, please." She charged the line to the macroscope and electrocuted three of them. She also sealed her box an instant before she dispersed her toxin, shutting off her own air, flooding the ship. It was a miniature storm within the night outside. Thrashing, the gremlins did more damage. Then it was still. Clara felt too wild to mourn, but she closed her eyes briefly. Eighteen of them dead, an entire hunting party. Had she just doomed however many others were still in the caves, killing their strongest and smartest? The ship urgently needed repair bots, yet Clara had no trouble convincing it to build a cat's claw first—a whip-fast centipede with articulate saws, both to remove the little bodies and to defend themselves until they were spaceworthy again. She made sure she had command, then she sent it to drill out the ship's computer core. Clara stayed another year in orbit, following the gremlins with probes and nanotags. She invaded every tribe and secret, and quickly confirmed her initial reports. They were as human as any gene craft, like her, 
Even with their drastic changes, they carried enough baseline DNA to vote and hold an inheritance if those privileges had meant anything in this place. There was no telling how many generations it had been since their forefathers changed them. The seed ship must have been so badly damaged that even a partially hospitable world seemed like a godsend. This biosphere contained a few odd sugars, but there was nothing poisonous here, and a colonist could probably step right outside and subsist for a lifetime. The problem was how many lives, how few people could subsist. The scarcity of air, water, and food was an impassable limit. One ancestor had had the vision to see what was impossible and what was not. The long eyes to look past how much would be sacrificed and push for what was best. Before they depleted whatever resources they had left, before their only chance was gone, they'd created a new breed of sons and daughters. Clara had more in common with these survivors than anyone would think at a glance. Imagination, grit. The solitude of being different. Yes, the gremlins had lost some of their intelligence with their size. Clara supposed that was a mistake or an unexpected side effect, but they were gaining it back. They were pack rats. They still had most of their ravaged ship down inside the caves, guarding its steel and plastics, thieving from each other, trading with each other, no longer aware of what use these substances might be, except as money. Or superior tools, but on some level they remembered what they had been. They were people in every way that counted. They cultivated mold as crops. They stacked walls of rock to make reservoirs where steam or runoff was available. The gremlins lived and bred and died, exploring, growing, failing, and succeeding. And ultimately, Clara could not bring herself to betray them. This world was worth far more than she could ever spend, but she needed so little, and the ship was completely hers now. She could not rescue them; she could only ruin them. The arrival of normal men might be inevitable, but she could buy them time—centuries. Would that be long enough for them to regain their intelligence and meet normal men as equals, no matter how small? Maybe not. Maybe they were too little to ever be very bright, but the chance was there. So for twelve months, Clara forged medicine and tools and books and dropped these supplies to the crater floor. Meanwhile, she broadcast her carefully drawn lies back toward known space. Biohazard. This is an unstable, low atmosphere world seething with acid bacteria. Clara put a beacon in orbit to repeat the warning forever. Then she left the pocket planet and followed after her own vision again. The end. There you go, Joe McGett. Copyright is most certainly, definitely Jeff Carlson's. Jeff, thank you so much. There will be a link onto Jeff's site. Do pop over there. It is a fun website he's got going over there. Follow his blog, take part, get the free stuff. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much, sir.
So we will jump straight into the new titles. Three new titles on offer today. They are three of the, the genres. We've got a science fiction one, horror one, and a fantasy one. Kicking off with the fantasy one first. I'm, well, I'm calling it fantasy. I'm guessing it is. Jim Butcher, Small Favour. This is one of these Dresden Files. Now, I have not heard anything about the Dresden Files. I haven't watched the TV programmes or anything like that. So I had a check on Wikipedia just to give us like a heads up. And I'll give you the heads up of the first paragraph, what Wikipedia says of the Dresden Files. The Dresden Files is a series of fantasy mystery novels written by Jim Butcher. He provides a first-person narrative of each story from the point of view of the main character, private investigator and wizard Harry Dresden as he recounts investigations into the supernatural disturbances in modern-day Chicago. Butcher's original proposed title for the first novel was Semi-Auto Magic, which sums up the series of balance of fantasy and hard-boiled detective fiction. Now, I'm probably thinking I would might like that, you know. I don't know how it sounds or anything. Like, like I say, I've never read anything. Looking at the front cover, it is like a kind of hard-boiled cover. Do you know, it's got, like, blood stains around on, on like, and it's like... Typed a typewriter written letter on the front there, and we're talking. Let's see how many pages about 430 pages. And this is like I say, small favors. This one in the series, it's come from there was at the very beginning Stormfront, Full Moon, Grave Peril, Summer Night, Dark Masks, Blood Rites, Deadbeat, Proven Guilty, White Knight, and like I say, a small favor. I've no idea how they correlate to kind of the TV programmes or anything like that. But, you know, praise for the Dresden Files. Action-packed page-turners, great fun. That's Starburst. Logos, unusually well-crafted. And SF Sites is excellent. Everything works. I'll give you a little heads up on the back. New problems grow from old doubts, twisted promises and a friend as dangerous as any four. Harry Dresden is feeling happy. No one tried to kill him in nearly a year. And the worst problem he's had lately is trying to remove the stains his apprentice bungled into his carpet. The future looks fairly promising. Unfortunately, the past isn't nearly so bright. An old bargain placed Harry in debt to Mab, fairy monarch of the Winter Court and the Queen of Air and Darkness. Harry still owes the Winter Queen two favours, and it's time to pay one of them off. It's a small favour, and he really can't refuse but it will trap Harry between a nightmarish foe and an equally deadly ally, stretching his skills and lightlies to their very limits. It figures everything was going so well at last. Priced at six ninety nine, Urban Fantasy, it comes under the title of. So there you go, a small favour, Jim Butcher. Next one up is, let's pick on the horror one, Kelly Armstrong, Men of the Other World. Actually, this cover, I quite like this cover. It's got some sort of like circle, pentagon, circle-y image there. And through it, you've got this kind of monstery, werewolfy looking creature, all fangs and golden eyes, and it's all in flames. And that's actually quite a nice, quite a gripping cover there. I know from reading like just bits of blurb on this that this Kelly Armstrong is actually donating all these profits to, I think it's the Canadian, let's just have a look there. Kelly Armstrong says, All my proceeds from these volumes are going to the World Literacy of Canada. 
a non-profit volunteer organisation dedicated to promoting international development and social justice. The stories were originally intended as a gift to my readers and now they'll be re-gifted to a worthy cause. Well, there you go then, not too bad. Like I say, Men of the Other World, I'll give you a little heads up on the blurb. I don't remember the first time I changed into a wolf. One night I passed out and woke to find my body covered in yellow fur. My brain was beyond reacting. It took this in its stride, as it had everything else in my new life. I got to my feet and went in search of food. As a curious and independent six-year-old, Clayton didn't resist the bite. He asked for it. But as a lone child werewolf, his life is under constant threat. So when enigmatic pack member Jeremy Danvers saves him, Clayton is determined to protect his adopted father, no matter what the cost. So begins this gripping collection of four tales chronicling the bloody feuds of the American pack and the coming of age of Clay Danvers, a very powerful and very singular werewolf. Bit of praise for Kelly Armstrong, gripping and believable, Publishers Weekly. SFX says a great read. And the Daily Express, well, tabloid newspaper says, makes Buffy look fluffy. There you go, seven ninety nine. Kelly Armstrong, Men of the Other World. It is coming in at 365, 67 pages, 69 pages, 369 pages. Nice cover on that one. There you go, Kelly Armstrong. Actually, Karen Slaughter says, Kelly Armstrong is one of my favourite writers. There you go. So that's fantasy, horror, and science fiction. Wow, very rare to get a science fiction one. And it's by one of the giants here, Ian M. Banks. It's the paperback version of his new culture novel, Matter. The Times. I love <laughs> Kelly Armstrong has a Daily Express blurb. Ian M. Banks can he can get the Times blurb. And the Times says, Unexpectedly savage, emotionally powerful, and impossible to forget. Wired.com says, of all the books I've read of ultra-powerful galactic civilizations, this one does it best. Incredible tech and a huge scope, yet telling a very human story that stands out among the vastness. That was Wired.com. SFX says, this long-awaited return for both a writing legend and his finest creation is a delight. Sci-Fi.com. Banks can sum up a sense of wonder, big concepts you've never seen before, and display them with a narration as deft as a kundra's fingers. I'll give you a little on the kind of actual story, and it's actually it doesn't give that much away into what's go- what is about to happen in the story, but in a world renowned within a galaxy full of wonders, a crime within a war. For one man it means a desperate flight and a search for the one, maybe the two people who could clear his name. For his brother it means a life lived under constant threat of treachery and murder. And for their sister, without knowing the full truth, it means return to a place she thought abandoned forever. Only the sister is not who she once was. Dejan Surti Applin has changed almost beyond recognition to become an agent of the Cultural Special Circumstances section, charged with high-level interference in civilizations throughout the galaxy. Concealing her new identity and her particular set of abilities might be a dangerous strategy, however... In the world to which Annapolis returns, nothing is quite as it seems, and determining the appropriate level of interference in someone else's war is never a simple matter. There you go. I mean, this is a nice meaty one as well, to be quite honest. The actual story kicks in, or finishes, round about the 500, 600 pages nearly. And there's a few extras in there as well. There's an interview with Ian Banks. 
I'll give you, I mean, as if not many people know Ian M. Banks, because we've done a show, so hopefully you've listened to that show about him. Ian Banks came to widespread and controversial public notice with the publication of his first novel, The Wasp Factory, in 1984. Consider Phlebas, his first science fiction novel was published under Ian M. Banks in 1987. He is now acclaimed as one of the most powerful, innovative and exciting writers of his generation. Ian M. Banks lives in Fife, Scotland. Some more prayers for Ian M. Banks. A searing inquiry into justified warfare and the dangers of imposing your ideas of civilization, told at a rattling pace with breathtaking set pieces and oodles of wit and charm. That's Scotland on Sunday. Watson's books quarterly, they say, set in an integrate and yet wonderfully realised world. This latest culture novel will pull you in and keep you hooked right up to the explosive finale. Publishers Weekly says, and this is actually one of their starred reviewed, beautifully written and filled with memorable characters and startling technology. Banks is still at the height of his powers. 799, E&M Banks Matter. The cover on this, I mean, like I say, this is kind of was a high-profile book when it came out, but it's got this... I love the kind of tones, like a golden-orange tones, and it's like a baked sand desert, and you've got this lone stranger walking away into the into the distance there. So there you go, that's the three books. First one, e m Banks, Matter, nice science fiction one there, priced at $7.99. Kelly Armstrong, Men of the Other World, priced at $7.99. And Jim Butcher, Small Favour, priced at six ninety nine. There you go. That's new titles for this week. Next, we come on to our second main fiction of the night. Some stages along the way toward our failure to reach the moon. What a great title. Larry, that's fantastic. Listen out for Larry's little outro at the end of this story. We all know Larry, he was in the finals of the Sofa Note Awards. Fantastic narrator and a fantastic writer. Larry, thank you so much for this, and thank you so much for reminding me. So the Starship Sofa and her oral delights is very proud to present. Some Stages on the Road Toward Our Failure to Reach the Moon by Lawrence Santoro. The trip to the moon did not happen. It failed because of a hat, but as with most failures, this one arrived in stages, the end point of many details. And, of course, it was not the hat's fault. Stage 1. D'Angelo was born. Stage 2. D'Angelo's dad died. Korea. Stage 3. D'Angelo found the dead cat three weeks after school started. Fifth grade. Just luck. As usual, he was dodging Keegan and Neewig after release time up at St. Sophie's, and, as usual, they got him. This time he came to earth, arm wrung behind, face ground into the soft garden soil by the peony bushes along the rectory. Neewig twisted. Keegan giggled. Two feet from D'Angelo's nose, lying in the still summer-green tangle of stems and fallen peony petals, recently dead, within a week, D'Angelo figured— was Father O'Doul's cat, its grinning head risen stiffly in a silent yowl, every paw sticking out, the tail going bare, muddy skin beneath scant fur. Shoving the pain in his shoulder and Keegan's giggles into the background, what had happened to the cat emerged apparent to D'Angelo. 
The thing was probably snoozing on O'Doul's windowsill, just above, taken by sickness, age, poison, or just plain nastiness. God or something had struck it down, and it had tumbled the three stone stories into the peonies that ringed the building. Dead when it landed, D'Angelo was sure. Ah, but getting it from window to bush, that was the thing. He watched it in his mind. He saw croaking death seize the animal so fiercely that its muscles sprang and it popped from the windowsill. He saw it bounce gently off an imagined ledge. There was no ledge, but there should have been. Its body spinning slowly. Then it landed, adjusted to place in slowest of slow motions. Then peony stems rebounding, swaying slowly. They slowed to stillness till all evidence of the death, the fall, the bounce, the body was erased from time. While he watched all this in Technicolor, Neewig and Keegan knelt on D'Angelo's back, twisting until he grunted into the dirt. Yes, yes, he was a fat queer, one big fat queer. He said it, said it again, whatever they wanted. Whatever D'Angelo was, O'Doul's beast lay there, rotting. In Encyclopedia Britannica time-lapse, D'Angelo imagined the cat shriveling, collapsing inward, white grubs eating, wriggling over it in speed-up time, and damn, he, D'Angelo, knew where it was, and what was better, no one else did. Certainly not Reinhardt. Stage 4 the day D'Angelo brought Reinhardt to show him the cat, his observations and conclusions made over the weeks of watching the animal disintegrate, that day the cat vanished, and Sputnik went up. D'Angelo stopped caring about dissolving cats or the drawings he'd made on scene, improved at night by flashlight, and stashed in the log cabin box of secrets he kept beneath his bed. D'Angelo no longer cared about a cat, not a bit. Stage 5. D'Angelo made a poem. The poem was, Twinkle, twinkle, little Sputnik, how I wonder why you blinknik, you dirty little Russian nudnik, how the heckle I get my sleep when all night long you beep, beep, beep. D'Angelo read it aloud. I like the heckle I get my sleep part, he said. Yeah, heckle I, that's good. Reinhardt snorted, said the poem was dumb. It's dumb because you didn't make it. Dumb because blinknik, dumb because you mean hell and you say heck. Heckalai is what I say, all right. How the hell can I get my sleep then? And because the lines are screwy, too many syllables and too many lines in the rhyme scheme, A-A-A-B-B, come on. Reinhardt sang his complaints like he did, like talking to an idiot. And you can't hear Sputnik, not without equipment. It beeps on a radio and you have to tune it just right. "'and have the right kind of radio.' "'I heard it,' D'Angelo said. "'And Sputnik makes me not sleep.' "'Everyone had heard it. "'On television, of course. "'The picture was a still photo from Russia, "'and Channel 3 carried it. "'And they played the beeps, the awful beeps, "'Russian beeps from the commie moon "'that now circled over every hour and a half. "'The announcer voiced doom. "'This,' he said, letting the silence linger.' is the sound. They listened. Then a sound, from five hundred miles above, a rhythmic beat, something, a ship calling, pulsing in distant night. It neared, then faded, gone. 
That is the sound. It comes from outer space by courtesy of the Union of Soviet Socialists Republic. The announcer was disgusted. Around nothing the size of an American basketball, the announcer said, as though such a thing, and how could there be such a thing, could, no, would blow all America off the map. The four antennae pictured on the commie basketball lay swept backward along its zooming trail. The speed of it, the speed, Reinhardt shrugged. Eighteen thousand miles an hour. That's crazy, D'Angelo whispered. Any faster it'd escape. Twenty-five thousand and whoosh! Reinhardt's hand shot straight over D'Angelo's shoulder. For good and gone. Crazy. D'Angelo was mad. Why didn't we do it? We will, for IGY, Vanguard, we're sending an artificial moon, and what? A few days? Crime is D'Angelo, it's not the end of the... But we didn't, we didn't do it, forever we didn't, he said, remembering how John Wayne had talked about dead soldiers never getting up to walk again. So, we will, and better, and your poem still stinks, and you can't hear Sputnik in bed sleeping, you can't beeps, it beeps radio. No, D'Angelo had heard, and he couldn't sleep. And Hecali was better than hell. It had K, like Sputnik, Nudnik, and Blinknik. But the hell with it, he thought finally. The poem? It was stupid. Anyway, he was not an English guy, not an art guy. He was a science guy. He was a rocket guy. Stage 6 after Vanguard failed, collapsing in fire as it quivered on its tail, he and Reinhardt made plans. If the country couldn't, they would. Go to the moon. They would. In stages, of course. Not now, not tomorrow. Of course not. They were kids. Would, though, soon. He and Reinhardt were scientists, after all. Or would be. They would gather the things they'd need along the way over the next, well, over the years, however long. They'd gather the materiel. That was Reinhardt's word. His brother, a mechanic in the Air Force, sent letters with words like AWOL, Mission, Materiel. The Materiel was there, surplus, good stuff. They saw it all down at Kagan's Army-Navy on Railroad Street. Government had too much, was all. Shovels, bayonets, helmets, jeeps, and probably missiles. Well, old ones, anyway. The Army had dozens, hundreds of V-2s taken after the war, shipped to New Mexico, stored, useless. They'd seen them in movies. They'd seen them on TV. They'd get one. They'd put it together, fit it out to carry a human payload, another Reinhardt word, them. Then. As Pop-Pop saw it, the problem was not that they didn't have money for an Army surplus shelter half, much less a German rocket ship. Not how were they going to build a missile to go to the moon when the whole American government couldn't, wouldn't, D'Angelo groused. The problem wasn't even that they were, for crying out loud, kids. Nobody's gone to the moon, that's the problem. You get one of your rocket ships up too far there, and it's, it's fallen right back. Russians didn't. The old man lip-farted. That Sputnik's not out. It's not into the, what you call it, uh, out of space. Sputnik's just... He pointed to the ceiling. Sputnik's just up. Sputnik just going round around the world up there. You can't go into out of space. He leaned in closer. What are you going to push against up there? Always got to push on something to get up, get gone. What do you push on out there, huh? 
There was an answer. D'Angelo knew, but he had to admit the old man had made a point. He did not bring Pop-Up's point to Reinhardt during their design sessions. Even with the first ice silvering the trees, Klein's pharmacy felt like summer. "'Come on in, the air's conditioned cool in here,' the door said. It was. The place smelled dry all year. The air circled and recircled through the store, through them. It crisped their nose hairs. At the marble table in the back, the scent of ices and creams and rubber tubes, enameled pans and cough syrup, varnished wood and flypaper filled them. Shelves surrounded them, cold and whispering. Their surplus V2 had become three surplus V2s. Stages. Each latched to the one below, each stage chopped and tucked, the whole assembly tapering now hundreds of feet above the desert. In plan, their journey was beginning to look, well, possible. They were atom-fueled now. The first stage, the one that had to lift them off the desert earth, that at least. That just made sense, D'Angelo had argued. Atoms are more powerful than chemicals. Of course they are. Boom! Everyone had seen the pictures. Everyone had seen the television shots. Reinhardt agreed, squinting. Atoms were more powerful than gunpowder, more than red-fuming nitric acid and hydrazine, more than powdered zinc and sulfur, and that mixture had shot an empty .30-06 casing from one of D'Angelo's dad's long-ago spent hunting shells all the way across the yard and alley, and would have shattered Hebhart's kitchen window if it hadn't thwacked his mom's laundry hanging on the line and dropped hissing hot on Hebhart's dog, who jumped awake, woofing, as they ran in separate directions, Reinhardt and D'Angelo. Reinhardt agreed, finally, to Adam's. Still, he squinted at D'Angelo's sketch and shook his head at the triumphantly radiating atomic pile that now nested in the former fuel tank at the bottom of the ship. They began practicing for the flight when D'Angelo grabbed Mahler's mom's refrigerator carton and dragged it into his basement. He painted gauges, buttons, and switches on a pair of shoeboxes which they carried on their laps for practice. Light from the bare bulb above the sink at the far end of the basement shone through the porthole he cut into the side of the craft, their moon. It was at this time D'Angelo began wearing the army garrison cap his dad had left him, had left him. With its silver captain's bars, it felt right. Heck, John Wayne was just a sergeant, well, sometimes. Light from the bulb bounced from the insignia and glinted on Reinhardt's face, flashed across the instruments, and touched the red fire button as they counted from fifty down to zero. They made the trip half-dozen times. "'Rods!' Reinhardt yelled one rainy day as D'Angelo hit twenty-eight. "'I'm counting. Cripes, twenty-six, uh, twenty-five,' D'Angelo said. "'Cripes yourself. You need rods. What?' Twenty-two, twenty-one, thorium rods,' Reinhardt said. He pointed to the red button. D'Angelo looked at Reinhardt. Reflected light flicked in his friend's eyes. Nineteen, eighteen, thorium, thorium rods controls the chain reaction, don't you know?' Reinhardt sang a stupidity song. "'I know. Fourteen, thirteen, Reinhardt leaned over. "'They have to pull out.' withdraw, his hand fluttered, worrying over dozens of imaginary rods sliding or not sliding from the atomic pile beneath them. When he reached zero, D'Angelo 
didn't feel like pushing the red button, so nothing happened. Later, at Klein's, D'Angelo drew ropes, pulleys, dozens and dozens, elaborate channels for ropes and pulleys, channels that climbed the ship through the stages all the way up to where he, D'Angelo, lay strapped in their cabin, waiting to pull. Damn lever. Cripes, D'Angelo thought. Withdraw a rod? That starts the blast off? He imagined fires funneling in rages through the rocket hole in their tail. The noise, the explosive joy of it, an adventure beginning by pulling out a rod. Reinhardt squinted at the webwork of ropes. D'Angelo drew more pictures. Their rocket at blastoff. The rocket in space, moving, pushing against... against what? The rocket descending a piston of fire to the cratered moon. His rocket parked among the mountains of the moon. And them, pictures of them climbing the gantry, waving goodbye, entering the ship. Them strapped down, surrounded by gauges, switches, clocks. He made pictures of Earth growing small in the window, small as the bulb over the sink. Of them at the porthole, the moon approaching, of him steering the fire in the tail of the uppermost, the smallest V2 stage, as the moon rushed to them. He didn't show the pictures to Reinhardt. The afternoon, a large black waterbug crawled across his forehead and dropped on his leg. Reinhardt bailed out, screaming. Almost two hours into a flight, five minutes from the landing, and Reinhardt tore off the hatch and ran, swiping at his clothes, danced up and down by the sink, still brushing. D'Angelo started going into space without Reinhardt. One less person, that much more air, fuel, sandwich... In the travels between basement and moon, D'Angelo lived hundreds of voyages, had survived, or not, storms of meteors. He'd lost, and sometimes found, himself, between worlds, or, going further, ended on Mars, Saturn. Once, he set foot on the, on the sun's flaming surface. <laughs> the sun... He tore up his log entry on that one right away, but he kept the others. He made pictures of the possibilities, remote but potential, of attack by monsters, by meteor beasts that caught hold, passing in space. He wrote down descriptions of dinosaurs that lived in the jungles of cloud-sheathed Venus, or made records of the wise creatures who did not want mankind in space because we could not be trusted among peaceful beings— he made pictures of ships hidden behind the moon, awaiting this moment to spring. Now and then, without telling Reinhardt, D'Angelo took Lenz along with him. And with him, the journey rarely lasted a minute before their hull had been thumped by meteors or before Lenz hushed, You hear that? No, listen, you hear that? Every landing they ended in fighting Russians, Martians, Germans, or whatever monster might be down the alley or hidden in the dark passways between houses on Perkiomen Avenue. Lenz always brought guns. Star traveling with him was much, much more exciting. Yet, whenever D'Angelo drew pictures of two explorers standing, finally standing, on the moon, the earth and black sky above them, above their tiny craft, far, far behind it, Always it was Reinhardt that was with him. D'Angelo and Reinhardt, the flag between them. After all that had come before, they were there and alive, D'Angelo and Reinhardt, on the moon, first on the moon, and famous, famous forever. Reinhardt looked from picture to picture. You're nuts, he said. Yeah, 
<laughs> what about him? D'Angelo said. Reinhardt giggled. That was the last time he showed his friend any drawings that weren't purely technical. Christmas. That year, a junior engineer's drafting set, drawing board, T-square, pair of compasses, French curbs, architect's scale, kneaded eraser, mechanical pencil, a pad of real drafting paper. D'Angelo looked from mother to Pop-Pop to visiting aunts and sleeping uncles. Pop-Pop smiled. You still got nothing to push on there, you know. Still can't be done, but uh, you can make better pictures, he said. He made different pictures, spent hours drafting the ship's hull, making both sides curve just so, just the same. And when he got it just right, he threw it away. The crummy drawings were better, dozens where one edge bellied more than the other, or more with bulbous extrusions that looked, well, just right. The more the differences, the better it felt. The heck's that? Reinhardt said. Reinhardt got squeakier each time they sat to work. It's better, D'Angelo said. Look. He traced the ship's softly curving underbelly in the cool air in front of Reinhardt's mouth. And then he traced a humpback topside above his partner's eyes. You see? That's a turret. Smooth. Yeah? The question hung. Those lumps, it looks like a pregnant guppy. He pushed his finger against the ship's needle nose. And what is that for? D'Angelo touched the smudge with his eraser, sharpened the line against the white paper. Antenna, he said. Yeah, antenna. And by the way, Reinhardt shoved his finger on the detail of the atomic pile. You have any idea what a reactor weighs? D'Angelo shrugged. Well, too much. It's mostly concrete and lead. So? Can't lift it. And no atomic pile, no atomic power, singing again. Cripes, anyway, what are you figuring's the reaction mass? Uh, D'Angelo shuffled the plans from top through, wiping sticky cherry pop from them. Uh, mass, yeah, uh, reaction mass, he said as he paged. What's the pile supposed to heat up, blow out the ass end? To make us go, you know, Newton's law, action, reaction, that's what makes us go. What's our action, D'Angelo? D'Angelo shrugged. That was almost it, but not quite. Stage seven. The final it was about who would lead. D'Angelo was D'Angelo's only choice. To Reinhardt, Reinhardt was the obvious one. "'What's pi?' he asked. Three point, I don't know, something. Three point one four five nine two. Reinhardt strung numbers to a dozen places. "'What's orbital velocity?' D'Angelo knew, but he couldn't remember. "'What's escape velocity? What's the escape asymptote? What's the optimum launch? Where's the optimum launch place? Uh, New Mexico, the equator, dummy.' Reinhardt capped the questions, pointing at the tiny final stage. Now look, that thing gets us down. How are we going home, he asked. Did you figure that? You and Lentz ever make it back, or were you too busy shooting monsters? He sang monsters. In fact, D'Angelo had not worked it out. There were reasons why he had not, secrets that had nothing to do with Lentz or being too busy. D'Angelo didn't say... He stared at Reinhardt. 
Reinhardt knew pi, asymptotes, orbits. He was a book of knowing. Reinhardt picked at problems, but never shouted solutions. Reinhardt carried a mouthful of why-nots and never had a howl. He never burned with the joy of not knowing, never seemed to feel terror, lovely horror. He never saw a monster because he knew no monsters were. Oh, maybe water bugs from basement drains. Reinhardt never knew fame like a distant ice cream cone, never wanted forever fame. He wasn't sure, but D'Angelo was pretty sure. Reinhardt had not said prayers, never asked God to make him first, to push him to be the first, the first ever to set foot upon the moon. Reinhardt, of course, had a point. Numbers, his numbers, made the moon possible. Reinhardt leading, the trip could happen. D'Angelo could counter with nothing that made sense. Not to Reinhardt. How could he say, who'd want to go to Reinhardt's moon? Who'd want to go to your moon? What D'Angelo had was a garrison cap. The old man's captain's bars left for him. And that was it. Through birth, D'Angelo was a captain, too. And captains led, no question. They pushed on. The trip he saw was his. He would lead to the moon, be the first, would wear Dad's rank up there. Simple. The journey to that moon was a trip of joy. They fought at St. Sophie's Playground in April. Others were there. Mahler, Hebhart, Lenz, others. Simple, terrible. It was about something else, really. A, a game, a game of no importance. But it was about mankind's first journey to the moon. No mistake about that. Not for D'Angelo or for Reinhardt. Reinhardt insisted he should coach the game. D'Angelo said, no, 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 no. He had the cap, the captain's cap. That made him captain. They hurled at each other, grappled, rolled in the grass. No one hurt. Keegan and Neewig, hanging by the pavilion, smoking, laughing, punched each other like sissies to show how little kids fought. Neither kid drew blood in the punch-up. D'Angelo's nose bled a little, but it did that anyway, without punches. Reinhardt's glasses were knocked off his face. Lenz grabbed and held on to them until, after tussles and grunts, D'Angelo got Reinhardt turned onto his stomach. He kneeled in his back and twisted his arm, and he knew how that hurt. "'Who's captain?' he shouted to Reinhardt's ear. "'Who's got hats and bars? Who leads?' "'You do, you do, you do, you do!' Reinhardt shouted, dissolving. When they separated and stood, snot ran down Reinhardt's lip and made mud with the dirt." He squinted away tears. Lentz handed his glasses back. They were bent, not much. Reinhardt twisted them to shape, put them on, walked away. Neewig and Keegan hooted. Reinhardt and D'Angelo didn't talk until seventh grade. By then... By then it was too late. Stage eight. D'Angelo in the NCO club, Da Nang, Vietnam. The tube above the bar flickered black and white. It hissed. Even Cronkite had shut up now. What the hell time was it? The club was open. The war was on. Armstrong flickered past the camera. A slow-mo leap. He touched the surface, rebounded slowly. At least D'Angelo thought he had. It looked like. Sound cut in, out, breathing. You say what? The guy down the bar said. What did you say there on the moon? Guy said over Armstrong's first words. 
D'Angelo sucked beer. Neat, the landing, but what the hell? Everyone knew they'd make it. Figure they'll make it back, Guy said. <laughs> Figure you will, another voice said in back. Any of us? A thousand-yard laugh from another corner of the dark. D'Angelo sucked his beer to the end, ordered another, tipped it to the tube. Uh, I wouldn't, he said. Wouldn't come back. Said what? The guy said from the other side. Wouldn't come back. <laughs> Why not? D'Angelo snorted. Well, hell. Getting there's the fun. On the second anniversary of the loss of Space Shuttle Columbia, Twilight Tales, a writer's group here in Chicago, decided to do a benefit evening at the Red Lion Pub. The goal was to pay homage not only to the Columbia astronauts, but to all who died trying to kick our monkey asses out of the cradle and into the real world, the universe. Some Twilight Tales regulars, Jody Lynn Nye, uh, Tina Jens, a few others and I, were asked to participate by reading something that was maybe personally meaningful to us or to do an original piece for the event. It was a good evening. Uh, Twilight Tales raised a little money for the families of the Columbia crew, and we spent time together over a few good tales and a lot of good beers. We heard a few First Voyage pieces by Robert Heinlein and some others, Jody Lynn Nye and I wrote original stories. Jody, as always, was excellent, and as you might expect, her story featured a spacefaring pusscat. Mine was the story you just heard. It's not me in there, but it is. I was in seventh grade when Sputnik went up. D'Angelo was younger. But we both planned to get to the moon when we grew up. Like D'Angelo, I wanted to be first. On the evening of October 4th, 1957... I was at the eye doctor, getting my first pair of glasses. I returned a four-eyed flight school washout-to-be and found that the Soviet Union had beaten us to the edge of space. Like D'Angelo, I felt that my country had been cheated out of a place in history. Like D'Angelo, I decided that night, hot damn, I'm going to write that wrong. There was no cat. There was a Reinhardt. But we stayed friends throughout grade school and junior high. We fell out much later over Carol Devine, and by virtue of the fact that he remained a gearhead, and I... Well, I had fallen in love with distance. Along our years, my Reinhardt and I planned many trips to the moon, the planets. We plotted expeditions to exciting places here on Earth. At one point, we were convinced that the bones of dinosaurs lay just beneath the surface of the cemetery near our homes. Who needed the Gobi Desert, we thought. We had Charles Evans Cemetery. We sifted through tons of damp soil that the grave diggers had conveniently turned up and piled aside for us. We found those suspicious things, things that may have been, but, but who knew? We found what may have been meteors, but were probably bits of slag from carpenter steel. We found curious markings on sheets of shale. I was convinced that Neanderthals had lived in our town and had sketched saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths on these flat shards of stone, or even better, perhaps these shadow blots were, okay, 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 accidental photographs made by a marvelous coincidence of ancient lightning and the magic of chemistry in the soils of Reading. 
Well, eventually, my version of Reinhardt disabused me of these and other notions, explained them all. The fissiparous nature of shales, he said, the, the intrusion of impurities into, into well, into something. I, maybe, maybe I never forgave him for that. And maybe Carol Devine wasn't entirely to blame. But I did recognize, finally, that we'd taken separate paths to our personal stars. You see, he wanted to know. He wanted accuracy about rocks, about bones, about rockets. I wanted the rock I held in my hand to be the right one. I wanted it to have had a world of adventure locked in secret within it. Hell, I knew ghosts lurked in those wonderful impurities. Just look, there they were. Pictures, pictures, Reinhardt. Okay, what I said before about falling in love with distance, that's not quite right. I'd fallen in love not with the stars, but with the space between the stars. The moon, it was great. The planets, the stars, wonderful. But like many travelers, I fell in love with the going to rather than the being there. Science and its handmaiden, engineering, were about avoiding adventure. They were about smoothing it all out, turning a trip to the moon into, well, into a trip to the grocery store. Okay, obviously not. A lot of people had to hang their soft and altogether too fragile selves out there. Quite a few people had to die to earn us our ride off this planet. Like D'Angelo, I didn't lose interest. Not exactly. When Neil Armstrong set foot on the moon, I'd been waiting up. It was very, very late. I was living in London at the time, watching with friends. My across-the-hall neighbor, a producer for the BBC, and I were on the edge of our seats. I thrilled to Armstrong and Aldrin's touchdown. Then, Tranquility Base here, oh, he named it. He nicknamed one of God's spaces. It's no longer just a piece of rock. Where the eagle has landed is a base. Humans have a presence there, off-planet. I waited for his first words on the surface. There they were, one small step, giant leap, good, good, yeah, good. But it sounded, well, it sounded prepared, but okay, it was a nice sentiment. Then, then, then his next words, right on top of one small whatever, were about soils, its compressibility, some other things. I... I Things Reinhardt would have drooled over, and at that point, I knew it. The dream was ended. Reinhardt made it. He'd beaten me to the moon and to Carol Devine. It occurred to me that night in London that the book on a whole subgenre of science fiction was now closed. There'd be no more first voyage stories. The first men in the moon, uh, moon is a harsh mistress, rocket ship Galileo. Nobody'd ever write anything like that ever again. And the one that was in the history books, well, it was kind of dull. By Apollo 13, we were bored with the adventure. They changed that for, for a bit. Now, look, please understand, I am not saying I was disappointed that Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins' flight hadn't been a disaster. But the D'Angelo in me really wished that something had bounded over the lunar horizon or had emerged out of those inky shadows at Tranquility Base, that something had been lurking in the space between here and there, something that no one had counted on, that the engineers, the numbers people, hadn't factored in. So, 
when I thought to write a story to commemorate the loss of the crews of Columbia, of Challenger, or Apollo 1, or the dead of Soyuz, what I really wanted to memorialize was the dream that had taken us to the edge, but not the machinery that made the dream real. Too many of us are left still looking toward the horizon or into the shadows. Ah, here's an altogether gratuitous aside— Several years ago, a curious set of circumstances found me heading out to O'Hare Airport to pick up Buzz Aldrin. He'd been scheduled for an appearance here, and our end had let the side down, and I was the only one with the car and the time to gather and deliver him. When I got to the terminal, there he was, Buzz Aldrin, walking down the on-ramp toward the highway, bag in hand, about to hitch a ride. I gathered him. Fine thing, I said. You can send a man to the moon, but you can't pick him up from the airport. He laughed. He did that easily for a man who'd almost been left by his hosts to find his own way to town. The point of this is, I had an hour or so of gridlocked privacy with the second man on the moon. The man who'd in fact uttered the very first words on the moon. Look it up. Contact light. Okay. Engine stop. What's significant here is that in that hour, I met a guy who was earthy, human, bright. This is the guy who, after all, taught NASA orbital mechanics, the guy who suggested using water submersion for zero-gravity training. This was the ultimate Reinhardt. And I found that he had as deep, if not deeper, a capacity for dreaming than D'Angelo. Well, okay, he wasn't the first on the moon. This is Lawrence Santoro from Chicago, and thanks for listening. There you go, Larry. I like Larry's work because Larry always sends over an intro and outro, and it's so special that, you know what I mean? It just kind of helps the story. It sets the story. It gets to know the writer, and it's amazing. Larry, thank you so much, Squire. There you go, Oral Delights, number 62, double bill special. Larry Santoro, Jeff Carlson is... Put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Right, here we go again. This is the time. Get the drums going. The rally cry. The rally cry, yes. If you want to support the Starship Sova, please help out. Do you know, are we doing a worthwhile course here? Can you spare £2.50 a month? A pint of real ale. That's it. A month. Come on, sign up to the Starship Sova sanatorium feed. I have just put a new one out there. So there is a new show on the Starship Sova's sanatorium. If you just want to help out by just a one-off donation, that is amazing. Please pop over the site. Both links are there. It really, really does help the Starship Sova just keep going. And and is an amazing donation by yourselves. So thank you, everyone that has done that and everyone who will do that. So join me next week for another fantastic show. I would just like to say good night from me. survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa, a vacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in three, two, one.